0: All right, good morning. My name is Ryan, and I'm going to be leading us as we discuss what God's Word has to say in Hebrews chapter 10. If you've been with us these last few weeks, hopefully you're like me, where you have really enjoy digging deep into the, the diff, some of these difficult passages, to walk through what the Bible has to say. I think anytime that we can read God's Word and allow it to read us, I mean, it is what such value that is, and that's what we're here for this morning. So if you have a Bible device, go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 10. While you're doing that, Rob mentioned these screens. We, this past week we were discussing, hey, what are we going to use those screens for this week? Ryan, this is, you're the first guy. Are you going to do any videos? Are you going to do any... Yeah, if you, if you were here last time I preached, so you know I did this video. Um, you have any images? What are you going to do? And uh, we didn't tell Rob this, but the rest of the staff got together. And we decided that, well, the best way to inaugurate these screens is to take the most goofy picture of Rob that we have on file and to put that up first. Of course, that makes the most sense. I think the elders got wind of it and they met with me and we decided that probably wasn't the best thing to do for a lot of reasons, but just the financial investment of the screens and the projectors, the last thing we wanted to do was put a goofy picture of Rob that literally broke the projectors and now we don't know what to do. He's going to get me back for that at some point, I promise you. Uh, Let's look here at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to separate this into two main sections. The first is verses 19 to 25. Let me read it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I think it's interesting as we look at this, this is the first half of the scripture that we're going to look at this morning. There's a lot jam-packed into that. And if you're reading carefully, you should see that some of those things that we read in this section have been brought up by the author of Hebrews in previous sections of Scripture. Because what he's doing is he's weaving in multiple themes and connecting them all in this section. He's bringing it all to a head. And so we, we have several examples. Look at verse 19 when it talks about the blood of Jesus. Well, he's hearkening back to chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We'll talk about that here in a moment. On verse 21, the great high priest, remember back in chapter 7 and 8, we we're talking about Melchizedek and his high priestly line and how Jesus is part of that. Verse 21, over the house of God. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, we talked about how we are his house, that God is the builder. We get the, the credit goes to the builder and not the house itself, and he puts us together in ways that are special. Or verse 23, let us hold fast. In chapter 4, verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. Or chapter 6, verses 18, hold fast to the hope set before us. Remember talking about that anchor of our soul that doesn't allow us to sway with the the breeze or with the the waves. Or then here in verse 24, let us consider. The author of Hebrews in chapter 3, verse 1, talks about considering Jesus. And then he's going to continue that in verse 12, verse 3, when he says, consider him who endured. I mean, really, if you're thinking about everything that, that the author of Hebrews is trying to do, He's really telling us to consider, consider Jesus. And in in chapter 3, verse 1, that's when he begins to weave that theme in. So let's look at that. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. If you were to take all three verses and combine them, I think it would say something like this. Therefore, holy brothers, or holy brothers and sisters, you could say it this way too. Therefore, New Hope Christian Church, consider Jesus, for Jesus has been counted worthy. That word consider. He's really taking all these, all these themes. Remember all the times where he's talking about Christ is better? I mean, that's the name of our sermon series, Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better than the sacrificial system. It's as though here in chapter 10, the author of Hebrews is bringing all that to a head and he's beginning to transition from Christ is better to this other higher level, Christ is worthy. And we see that in this section of scripture and it actually starts in chapter 10, verse 12. You see it there, how it reads? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. Interesting idea of Jesus sitting down. If you think about someone sitting down, that usually means that they're finished. Whatever they came to do was completed. I mean, if I were to all of a sudden stop talking, walk down these steps, and sit down, number one, you would think that that was the shortest sermon ever because I'd be finished. You would know that I was was done. I had finished what I had come to do. Well, if Jesus is sitting here in verse 12, what has he completed? What what did he actually come to? To do what is now finished. I mean, think about the last moments of Jesus' life as he's hanging there on the cross. The last thing that he yells out is, it is finished. He finished whatever he came to do. Well, what was that? Did he come just, he, when he yells that out, is he just saying, hey, my life is done? Well, yes, to an extent, but I think it's much more than that. Isn't he saying that everything that we've tried to do in the sacrificial system, having to kill an animal and the blood is spilled, and that doesn't remove our sins, but it merely covers it. Isn't Jesus saying that is done? That is completely done. Finally, we have someone that, is, that does not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he goes in and offers a sacrifice for the rest of us. That's why I think it's so important that we have to consider Jesus and the fact that he is worthy when we try to understand this text. If you think back to last week when Rob gave us that diagram, we talked about the center of us is this image, this identity that only God can give us. But because of our sin, we get this shame and guilt that begins to break us in ways that we don't even fully understand ourselves. And we, have to, we feel like we have to cover ourselves. We, have to, we can't let other people see this the way that we really are, so we use our personality. We create this other image or persona so that no one can fully understand what we're doing. We run around spending all this time trying to cover up this sin, But contrast that with what Jesus is doing. He is sitting. He's not running around trying to figure out a way to figure out your sin problem. He's done with your sin. He is done with your sin. He is sitting. So I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is not just that Christ is better than this or better than this or better than this. He's really saying Christ is worthy of everything we can possibly give. And because he's more than that, it's not just like we have all these different options and we're, we're saying, well, I guess Jesus equates to being something that's worth our time. No, no, no. It's not saying that Jesus is just one of the different options. The author of Hebrews is finally getting to the point where he's saying, Jesus is the only option. He's the only way that we move forward. And because of that, don't you, don't you want to respond to that? Don't you want to try to give him everything you possibly can, who you are and what you could possibly do? So how do we do that? How do we respond how could we possibly respond? Well, the author of Hebrews in this section, chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, is trying to answer that for us. He's building this case that Jesus is worthy. We consider that. And now he's saying, how do, how do we respond? As I read it earlier, did you notice that there are three let us statements? In verse 22, it says this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In verse 23, we see the second statement, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And then in verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So the author of Hebrews is very much concerned with how we respond to this invitation of Jesus. But in this section of Scripture, do you notice that in verse 19, he doesn't start it with a let us statement. In fact, he says this in verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. It's as though the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, we need to respond to Jesus, but any response that you make that is not centered on the fact that you've considered Jesus and that he is worthy, any response is going to be misguided. It's going to miss the very heart of what Jesus came to do. Do you notice there, right, and it says in verse 19, by the blood of Jesus? Remember, that's hearkening back to chapter 9, verse 22, when it talks about that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The only way that you could become forgiven, become right in God's sight, is by killing an animal. The high priest and the Day of Atonement would kill an animal. That blood would then allow him to bypass the curtain, this symbolic and then physical barrier between the priest and God's presence. And then you, the high priest could offer a sacrifice for all of the people. That blood was required in order for any of that process to take place. And the main thing was that blood allowed you to bypass the curtain. And it was more than symbolic. It was a physical barrier. I mean, it was 60 feet tall. This is not any mere uh, shopping at Ikea to try to find uh, something that's going to block the sun in your kitchen. This is 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, four inches thick. It's as thick as your hand. It's hard to even fathom what that would look like. Scholars say that as they would replace the curtain every single year, that it would require 300 people to do that. That's more people than there are chairs in this room. 300 people. Imagine at the end of service, we get up. Rob gets up and says, "Hey, we have a little quick service project. Can we everybody come out here and so we can change the curtain?" Okay, that's unbelievable. It's hard to put our mind around what this looks like. Scholars have also said that if there was ever an, earth, an earthquake and the temple were to be reduced to rubble, the curtain would not tear. It was that strong, that thick, that formidable. But do you remember when Jesus is on the cross and he says, "It is"? Finished. Do you remember what happens, what the scriptures say? The curtain is torn from top to bottom. What no natural occurrence could do, Jesus does with his mere words. I think that's what verse 9, 19 is, is speaking to, this unbelievable idea that we have a new and living way to be into God's presence. Before, the curtain was this barrier or we couldn't get to God's presence because of this curtain. Jesus says, it is finished. The curtain is torn. And now, rather than there being a curtain that is a barrier between us and God's presence, now you have Jesus standing there inviting us into God's presence. No longer is there a curtain separating us from God. Now we have Jesus standing there inviting us to God. Do you, do you see it? I mean, that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. That's what I'm trying to make clear. Is there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that separates you both from the love and the presence of God. All you have to do is come to him to respond to him. So with that in mind, let's let's join the author of Hebrews as he goes through these let us statements. Verses 22, 23, and 24. Let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So let's look at this first one. What does it mean to draw near with a true heart? Well, in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and draw near to you. It's as though we are in our own space, and we finally get the idea that I can't do this on my own. And so we begin to look at Jesus, and we begin to walk his direction, and we realize, as we start making steps to him, that he is actually running towards us. It's like the prodigal son, right? When we start to put our eyes on him, we realize that he is actually running towards us. That's what James says. In Acts 17, Paul is speaking in the Areopagus and he says, you know, this God who made the world and everything in it, he's not made by human hands, that he's actually not far from any one of us. It's as though when we finally get to the realization that I can't do this on my own, I can't cover the sin and shame and guilt anymore, I'm just going to own it. And when we realize that, we realize that God is the only solution, he's the only option, we realize that God is actually, Jesus is standing right next to us. He's not far. It's like we have to go find him. He's pursuing us. So when I look at what Hebrews 10, is saying, what James says and what Paul says, it's as though this, this idea that Jesus is inviting us, it's an intimate invitation to come close. He does not want there to be any distance between us, none. It's as though there should not be any sort of formality that would require us to, to work somehow to get in his presence. Let me, let me illustrate it for you this way. When I was a, a kid, there were times when we would have a special occasion as a family, and we would all pile in the car and meet my dad at his work in, in Indianapolis. And we would do that so that we could go out to eat or do something fun in town. And it was something we really, really looked forward to. And so we'd hop in the car and drive there. It's an exciting thing. We park. We go in. We get the, up the elevator. And then when we get on his floor, you immediately realize that this is, this is not real world. I mean, it is solemn. It is quiet. These are important people doing important things of commerce. Not really a place for kids to be. And when you come in, there's a receptionist. And there's uh, a whole host of security protocol that you have to do to make sure that you're credentialed and that you can come in and, and see the right person that you're supposed to. Because you've got important people doing things. Well, if you know me or my two brothers uh, who are sitting right up here this service, uh, you know that it took all about two seconds to us to bypass security checkpoint number one and we are running through the building. We are running through the building and it's, there are lots of cubes and there are people sticking their heads up out of the cubes wondering what in the world's going on because of course we are not doing this quietly. Uh, you can't do it quietly. And we are running and we are just so excited because we know where my dad's office is. And we know that when we get there, it doesn't matter if the door is open or if it's shut. We can walk right in. It doesn't matter if he's meeting with someone or if he's on the phone. We can come right in, walk around the desk, and hop up into his arms. There's no question in our mind. And if there was, all it would take is one second to look to the side and realize that our pictures decorate his office, that our baseballs and our different things from sports are all there there's no question that he loves us there's no question that there was any going to be any formality that was going to stop us from being able to come in his presence i think that's what the author of hebrews is trying to describe for us here when he talks about drawing near let's let's go down to the second let us statement let us hold fast the confession of our hope well what does it mean to hold fast Well, this isn't the first time that the author of Hebrews has used this phrase, the idea of holding fast. In chapter 3, you mentioned earlier, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Or later on in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or later on in chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession So, the author of Hebrews has been working this theme throughout all of his book the idea that we need to grab hold of Jesus with everything we have. We cannot let go of him. Like a man that's tossed overboard by the waves, and then some of his comrades throw a rope out to him. I mean, you're holding on to that for dear life. Holding on to him for Jesus for dear life. Well, as I was thinking about this and trying to figure out a way to illustrate it, one of the things that that my wife could definitely say is something that's been interesting to me of late is the idea of mountain climbing, specifically rock climbing. You see these, these massive sheer granite walls and people are able to climb up these with ropes and they work together in teams. And I thought, no better way can I illustrate this, the idea of holding fast, holding on for dear life, than the idea of uh, rock climbing. And there was a, a, this, this guy that I found very fascinating. His name is Alex Honnold. He's probably the most famous... Uh, rock climber, and he does something that's a little bit different. He's a free, he does free soloing. This—it's climbing these thousand, two thousand sheer faces without any rope, without any equipment other than chalk. And so it boggles my mind, so I've been watching documentaries about him and other things, and uh, I came across this picture to try to get some perspective on it. I mean, thank goodness for these screens, because you, you can, even with these screens, you can't even see the trees. He's that high up. The only way that he was able to get up there is by climbing, finding the cracks, holding on for dear life. I thought that was probably the best way to illustrate this. Until this last week, uh, my three-year-old son said something to me that completely changed the way I think about what it means to hold on to Jesus. Of course, leave it to a three-year-old to reduce irreducible, complex theological statements into like one short little thing, okay? And so my, na- my son's name is Conrad. If you know him, you know that he likes to run. If you're out here after service, I mean, my number one fear any time on a Sunday morning is that he is going to somehow get in through the doors and end up on stage during service because he loves to run. He cannot be stopped. He has this motor, except for when we tell him that he has to stay with us or he has to stay on the sidewalk and he doesn't get free reign. He has to be with us. He doesn't like that. And so usually his motor runs out pretty quickly. And this past week, he did this when we were walking through the park he comes up to me, gets in front of me, makes me stop, holds his hands up to me, and he says this. He says, Dad, I want to hold you. Daddy, I want to hold you. Yeah, this is a picture of him. This is when we were in Haiti. Uh, he actually hated wearing that hat, but he, uh, <laughs> I, he was cooperative on the second picture. But, yeah, he comes up to me, and he says, Daddy, I want to hold you. What he means is, Daddy, I want you to hold me. Daddy, I want you to hold me, but that's not what he says. He says, Daddy, I want to I want to hold you. I think that's what this is trying to say. Rather than us trying to hold on for dear life, maybe it's coming in front of Jesus with our arms outstretched, our hands empty, and saying, Jesus, I want to hold you. Not because, not because I want to hold on to him for dear life, which I do. It's because I want him to hold on to me for dear life. See, I like this, this imagery Uh, with my son, because he he gets just reminds me of Jesus, but then there are other times when we try to hug him, and when he's more preoccupied, and I'll ask for a hug, and he will, what he'll do is he'll, rather than coming up in front of me, he'll back into me. You ever had a toddler do that? They'll back into you, and you have to hug him like around the backside, and then he goes and runs off. Why does he do that? Well, he does that because he has things in his hands. He doesn't want to give them up, or he's afraid that I'm going to take them from him. So he's compliant and wanting to get this Uh, for allowing me to hug him but he he doesn't want to let go of things that he thinks are more important so when I think about that I'm asking myself Ryan are you are you backing into Jesus are we backing into Jesus and requiring just a a short little compliant hug because we're holding on to things that we think are more important are we coming in front of him and letting go we hold fast by letting go, looking at him in the face, emptying our hands and saying, the, rather than have something that can't save me being more important, I'm going to let go of those and I'm going to allow the only thing that can save me to hold me for dear life. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here when it says hold fast. Now, let's skip down to this third let us statement. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. What does it look like to do that? Well, I think we have to... In chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 19, look at those very first couple words. It says, therefore, brothers, or therefore, brothers and sisters. We have to remember that the book of Hebrews is not written to Ryan King to to help me live a Christian life and to be a better person. It's not written to me. It's written to a group of Hebrews, plural. It's written to a group of people that need it, that need to be encouraged by this message in terms of considering God, understanding that Jesus is worthy, and responding to it. It's brothers and sisters. It's not just one of us. It's all of us doing this. Remember those let us statements? It's not saying let me do this. Let me do this. Let me hold on. Let me hold fast. Let me draw near. Let, no, it's saying let us. So yes, individually, we draw near to God, but collectively, we draw near to God. Yes, I need to hold fast to Jesus, and I want him to hold, hold on to me for dear life, but isn't that what we do here on Sunday morning? Isn't that what we're acknowledging here? God, we, we cannot do it. We have to do this together. I, I don't know what about our American culture makes us think and buy the lie that we can do things on our own. We were never made to do this on our own. And I think it, it's easy to fool ourselves. Remember in 1 Peter what it says about the devil? The devil is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Oh, How do, how do lions hunt? Well, they work in a group, they hunt at night, they try to separate some from the group, and then they kill them. If the devil is like a roaring lion, what he is wanting to do is he is wanting to find one of us in a a season of night in our lives, separate you or me from the group, and kill us. That's what he's coming to do. Make no mistake, that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to separate us from the group and kill us. Well, think about it this way. If you ever watch the Olympics... I'm not a big fan of the track and field events, but you've got all these track and field events, these unbelievable athletes that do, that run faster than I can even think. And they have some of these relay races, the 4 by 100 relay. Can you imagine someone, you watch the Olympics and there's a team, uh, one of the countries submits a team and it's actually only one person. Everyone else has four people, each person takes one lap and they, they pass the baton to each other, but one country has just one person. You'd be like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Is that person going to win? No. Why? Because the race wasn't designed for you to run it on your own. The race is designed for individuals to work together and help each other run the race. I think that's a, an illustration for what church is supposed to be, what this whole pursuing God thing is supposed to be. So who, who are we running with? Who are you running with? See, I think this is, this is so important. This is why Sunday mornings are so important. That's why Thursday night prayer group or D group or any time that you go and get coffee with someone else to build each other up, to help each other cling more closely to Jesus. That's why this is so important because the devil is trying to separate us and this race was never meant for us to be running it by ourselves. You ever get the sense that pursuing God is just too big for you? It's exactly right. It is. Because you weren't meant to run that race by yourself. So, what about you? What about me? What's the author of Hebrews asking us in these let us statements? He's saying this, is there distance between Jesus and you? Are you standing outside of God's presence in the temple as though the curtain is still there and it's gone? Instead of the temple, instead of the curtain, Jesus is standing there and you're still standing out in the courtyard as though there's a curtain, something separating from you and Jesus. And Jesus is inviting you in. Are you holding fast to Jesus? Are you holding on to him for dear life? Are you coming in front of him with arms, with hands empty, and saying, I want you to hold me for dear life? And lastly, are you committed to running the race with others? See, these are all questions, invitations, so to speak, both from the author of Hebrews and from God himself. See, there are th- these three let us statements give us three ways that we can respond, both individually and collectively, but later on, in verses 26 to 31, the author of Hebrews gives us a fourth way that we can respond. The idea that we can choose our own way and completely ignore these other, these other things. You see it there? Let's read it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. And if you read down further, do you see what it says? It talks about, uses language like trampling underfoot, profaning the blood of the covenant. Outraging the spirit of grace. See, I think what it's saying is if you forget to understand and begin where the author of Hebrews does, by considering who God is and what he's done and understanding that he's worthy, if you don't understand that he's worthy, then none of this drawing close, holding fast, stirring one another up, none of it's worth it. If he's not worthy, then none of this is worth it. And it's not just, when we read that passage, it's not a, a, something that should scare us in the idea that I have, I'm pursuing Jesus, but I know that I'm going to mess up. This process of sanctification leaves me struggling with how to live this out. It's not saying that Jesus neglects you and completely the forgiveness of sins is not for you. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying, when you trample underfoot and you profane and you outrage, that's essentially you saying, I'm, Jesus is there, I'm walking this way. I'm not, I'm not going his way. And Jesus loves you enough where he will let you walk where you want to go. He'll let you do it. You know what? I'm reminded of Hebrews 12, skipping ahead. This idea that we consider Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is, did you catch that? Seated. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, he loves us enough where he will allow us to walk whatever direction we want, but... I love that word, but it's just, I think it's the story of our human condition. We mess it up, but we can turn back to Jesus and we look to him. And again, he is running towards us. Let me read Hebrews 12:3 again. Consider Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider that Jesus is seated. He's not running around. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are as patient with us and love us as much as you do. We understand how broken we are, and we want to remember all the things we've forgotten about, what you've done for us and who you are. Help us to consider anew today, to realize how worthy you are, and help us to live in response of that truth. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.